Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> the next version that we see is really a pinnacle of A Star is Born. It was done in 1954, starring Judy Garland, James Mason, and directed by George Kukar. <laughs> <laughs> he came back for this one. He came back for it. So essentially, this uh, the 1954 version was uh, brought about by the fact that Judy Garland's career was kind of on the skids. She still was a great singer, still a performer, but she was really addicted. I mean, she was... She was the addict. She was the addict, hugely an addict, and and was having a hard time. And she'd married, uh, gotten together and married a guy named Sid Luft, who was had produced a few things, but he was not a top producer. But they wanted to produce a film that would be her comeback and would be a highlight for her talents. And so Judy and her husband, uh, their production company made a deal with Warner Brothers to do A Star is Born. So they took the same script that the 1937 version, right, 37, yes, used, and they had it revamped, interestingly, by Moss Hart. Moss Hart was a super successful and famous New York playwright, and he did a lot of plays there. They had him rewrite it, and then they didn't like it. So they had somebody, some other people rewrite it. And so there was all of that. It started out in turmoil, and it did not stop. This movie was such turmoil. And George Cukor got uh, convinced to come back in to do, do the directing. It's going to be Judy Garland. And Cukor, poor Cukor, he ended up directing Judy Garland. She was late. She didn't show up. She was sick. There were all kinds of delays. The original um, budget for the film, I believe, was $3 million, and it ended up, ended up being $6 million. So Ooh. the budget was doubled, and this guy's directing it. And this is the same guy who, about 10 years later, was directing Marilyn Monroe. Oh, wow. <laughs> with those. <laughs> the last movie that she got fired from. Well, he also directed her in an earlier film. God, I would have to look it up, but in an earlier film where he went nuts. And he was like, oh, it was Let's Make Love. And she was always coming in late, and she was just having a hell of a time with substance abuse and, 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 and her own insecurities. You can go back and listen to our three-part series on Subversive Blondes, where we talk about Marilyn. And, and then, he, then he ended up signing up again to direct her in the last film that she made before she died. And she got fired from that one because she wasn't showing up. So Kukor just, <laughs> the poor guy. You couldn't catch a break sometimes. But he directed this one. Just if you're interested, in this case, Judy Garland was 32 years old and James Mason was 45. 13 years. It's getting, yeah. it's getting up there. Yeah, I guess that's about reasonable. Yeah, that's about right of for this particular... Because yeah. the thing is, is you have to have the man still be attractive. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't so work otherwise. That he wasn't attractive. So anyway, the story is the same as what we just told you in the last film. So we don't even need to tell you the story because it's the same. But in this one, it switches from acting to singing. And the point was, was to create a showcase for Judy Garland. So instead of just getting a tiny little snippet of this acting, we end up having long, long swathes of songs, full-length musical numbers with Judy singing. It really makes it into an epic, yeah. Yeah, and I have to say that... Um, I feel like there's too much. <laughs> What's interesting is is that the film, when it was originally the first edited cut, was 181 minutes long, so three hours long. Wow! And it it went and it got good critical reviews, and 
it went out to the theaters and apparently the theater owners were complaining about the length because they wanted to be able to have four showings a day, not three, because that would be, what, 25% more money that they were making or a third more money or whatever. So they were getting complaints about that. So Jack Warner and Warner Brothers decided that they would go in, they would cut the movie, and so they cut the movie by uh, about half an hour cut about half an hour of the movie to make it two and a half hours long. And the problem is, is that they cut the wrong things. They should have cut some of the numbers. Yeah. Well, there's one number in particular that was actually very important to Judy, very much in contention. George Cukor wanted it cut. It was too long, and I agree with him, and Hmm. that was the born in a trunk number. Okay, yeah. It happens right in the middle, and it tells her life story through musical comedy or through musical and dancing about being born in the theater, being raised in the theater, being in vaudeville, blah, 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 blah. And on on her life goes on all these songs and it's really, really long. And it's a good number and it'd be great Mm -hmm. as an extra. But of course they didn't have extras in those days because they didn't have any DVDs in those days. But it was... It's not even essential to the... At all. The character. It's just, it's, yeah. her, it's her backstory. Now, in the first one, in, uh, not the, when I say the first one from now on, I mean the 1937 version. What Price Hollywood is sort of like the beta version of this. Right. So in 37. In 37, they give you the... Ba- you, you see in the beginning of the film, her in the old farmstead and the family, and then they have the, you know, then she goes to Hollywood. So you know a little bit about her background and her love for film and her drive. Well, with Judy Garland, the time frame on that was so long of that, that, yeah. I don't know, it was just too much. And it slows down the story because it comes kind of in the middle of the film and it just drags the pace down a lot. And so that, at the same time, she's amazing. And you do see if any <laughs> number in there, you would be like, oh my God, the star quality is through the roof. Right. And the, and the costumes, she wears all these really pretty costumes and she looks great. And so, yeah. Uh, and so basically what happened was, is that when they went, sent it back to be cut, the sales department decided what to cut out of the film. Oh no. I know. Can you believe that? Why? <laughs> and so what they did was they cut out all the stuff that was showed the building of their relationship. It, it, you know, the basically what happens is they meet. He's drunk. He's always drunk in every movie when they meet. He sees her sing. He's fascinated. He follows her home. He is trying to push her into getting a screen test. He, he's going to get her a screen test. She's got to do this. And then he falls unconscious and he's shipped off to his chute on the sea in a boat. And this is the early days, so he can't. So he's got to finish the shoot of however long before he can come back. And then she's going, I turned down a chance to go touring for this, this screen test. Where the fuck is he? And then he comes back. But as soon as he becomes conscious again and sober, he's all he can think about is wanting to get back to her. Because as soon as he's seen her, that's it. He's, he's, he's gone. And it's, it's almost like the, the, the physical romantic love and the love as an artist from seeing her sing is, is one. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it comes through in this one because Judy is that star. And she, yes, she is that star. And he comes back and he and he sends out a detective to try to find out where she lives. And he's searching everywhere for her. And they finally figure out where her house is. And he himself goes there. And he's knocking on the door and nobody answers. And it happens that she is sunbathing on the roof. And he's leaving. And she looks over there and goes, Hello, you know what? And she sees him, and then they see each other, and then they're back together again from that moment. All of that was cut out. 
And the reason that we know this is because we got a restored version that pieces this together through audio and still shots, just like photographs. And so they like piece them into the movie. So we know it was cut. Because they cut and they, off of every copy of the film, they cut it and threw the fr- the film away. Wow. And then another thing that cut, and I didn't tell you this, another thing they cut that just unbelievable, it's one of the best scenes in the film best i love it i'll never forget it is the marriage proposal scene mm. there's a there's a scene where where after she's successful and she's singing with the and there's an orchestra and she's recording he comes to see her and they go together on this little stairwell where apart from everybody else and they're talking and all you can hear is the music playing and the and and but somebody has put a microphone near them and has turned it on so they actually record their conversation and then at the end, uh, after they've had the conversation, they're going to start the recording session again. They, they, they say, okay, let's listen to this tape. Okay, let's check this out. They're sitting there, and they play the tape. And they play their conversation while they're listening of, of him proposing to her. And it's so adorable because Judy's listening to this, and she is, like, leaping around. She's, like, like holding her face, and she's laughing and giggling and embarrassed. And she, she jumps up, and, she, and she, she hides her face, and, she, and it's so authentic because in fact they didn't know they were doing that oh funny so that is their real reaction to them playing back that tape oh wow isn't that cool (laughs) that's cute yeah and they cut that out it's when it's the best because you see the impact that he has on her how he touches her heart how thrilled and how in love she is with him and how he loves her and i i think that it, it, it works so well and that's something that in the first one i definitely believed it but I didn't feel it as viscerally as I did in this one, where I really feel his, it's a passionate like longing for her that he has that is absolutely parallel and connected to his longing for his own pure artistry and the, the, the energy and artistry that he had. Also, they cut out all the bits of his films and his acting and all that stuff, so we never get to see that he was a great actor. And that, that does harm the film i think yeah because we needed to see that how good he was too you'll love her you'll hate it yeah but i i think you'll love it tldr it takes the star is born and it really shows you what being a star is and yes and it does bring in the question of art because i think before then in the previous a star is born iterations it was more yeah about working hard and a passion for maybe a craft well, it's also can I be popular? It was really about success. Totally, yeah. Can I create a product that people will buy? Totally. Whereas in this one, it really is about art versus commerce and bringing the two together and mm-hmm. how she brings the two together. And I think from then on, they try to do, to maybe capture that in other ones, but this is the most successful one. I agree. I agree. And just some uh, facts about the film before we talk about the last scene. So this film, in the very the first one, they had the Technicolor, right? This film was one of the first ones, and only the first musical, to use CinemaScope, which is that big widescreen format. And so George Cukor watched a film in 1953, which is the year right before this, called The Robe. And that was the first CinemaScope film. And he watched that film several times to, so that he could figure out the technique of how to use the CinemaScope. Now, The Robe is a, is a biblical epic. And this is really a much more intimate, very intimate film about Mm -hmm. the love. And so since it was so geared toward the epic, 
he had to figure out how to make it less intense. And so what he did is he used less color. He he, he mm. tamped down the color. And you'll notice that like some scenes will be kind of very blue. And even the sunlit scenes, they're not super intense or bright. And then in casting this film, of course, Judy was always going to be the character. And she and what oh also I thought was interesting, Judy Garland's real name was Francis Gum. Oh wow. Two M's. <laughs> so Francis Gum and they didn't like gum, so they changed it to Garland. And she said, well, if you're going to change my name to Garland, then I want to be named after Judy Holliday, who was a, a, a blonde comic actress who was very popular. Mm. In the, so she got Judy Garland. Francis Garland is a nice name, I think. Yeah, so it is. It sounds like literary more than Doesn't a stage. It? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. But anyway, so that was, uh, they changed her last name and she changed her first name. But uh, when they were casting the, the film, they were trying to figure out, you know, who's the perfect guy for this role. And they went to everybody except James Mason. First of all, the one they wanted the most was Cary Grant. Uh. Now, Cary Grant could have been, I don't know if he could have done the, the, the drama part of it, but he certainly was the look, the age, and he himself was like a pinnacle star. So what they did was, they wined him and they dined him and they took him out to dinners and lunches and everything. And then he turned him down. Wow. <laughs> and and basically said, because there was their production company, it was costing them money. She's like, if I could only get some of those lunches and dinners back, you know, <laughs> because they spent a lot of money. And the, the thing is, is that that's so Cary Grant. I don't know if you remember this from our Marlena Dietrich uh, series, but Cary Grant, he was a young man back in the, right. in the 20s yeah, and yeah. 30s. And his real name, speaking of changing names, was Archibald Leach. Oh, my God. I didn't know if you knew that. Wow. That they, was, why do they all have these names? dowdy names? I know. Isn't that crazy? Archibald <laughs> Leach. Leach? Yes. Archibald Leach. Yes. Wow. That's incredible. Archibald Leach, he came from England. He was an Englishman. And when he came over, he was he had been born in severe poverty. And he worked in the circus, and which is hard to believe, but he did, like acrobatic stuff. And he was so poor. And so that marked him for his whole life. So when he was a young man in the days of, like, Mae West, Mae West was his mentor. And speaking of older woman, younger man, see? There you go. That could have been it. Mae West was his mentor. She brought him up and she put him in her films. And so during that period in the early 30s, he was around the studio a lot where Marlena and uh, Mae West were and everything. And he would buy shirts wholesale and he would walk around the studio with them trying to sell them to people and stuff to get money. <laughs> and there's another story. And I don't remember who this was, but it was another famous actor who was a friend of his. And Grant was such a skinflint and he was so worried about money and deal deals he always had to get a deal on everything he always had to get cut rate so he bought a stereo oh they got this great deal he talked the guy down on the price so the joke they did is that they told him he said oh yeah i got the same stereo 50 dollars cheaper <laughs> and it drove him absolutely uh, ballistic <laughs> yes so that was that was gary grant so my guess is that he strung them along for as many lunches and dinners as he could get until he had to Yeah, probably. Yeah. It sounds about right. Yeah. And then they couldn't get him for the film. And so... So they, they looked at a whole bunch of other people and talked about other people. There's a whole long list. I won't even go into it. But the one I thought was most interesting is they considered every bankable male star, including Marlon Brando. Oh, wow. And Marlon Brando was two years younger than Judy Garland. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And I didn't know this, but Judy Garland was only four feet 11 inches four tall. Four foot 11 inches? Yes. Tiny. I know. Why don't you look up and see how tall Janet Gaynor was? Okay. So throughout the production, of course, she had to have very special, nice, particularly tailored clothing because of her height. 
And also because she had a lot of weight problems, uh, not only from eating, but bloating and because of the drugs and, and, and alcohol that she, she consumed. So she really had to struggle with that quite a bit. And also, one of the other things that doubled the clothing budget was that, well, she saw something she liked. Eh, she took it home. <laughs> so the costumes kept disappearing. Yeah, I feel like Marlena Dietrich did at the That's end of the funny. pictures, stealing yeah. the furs and stuff. And then... She also would just take things out to wear them just like on an event. She'd bring them home and bring them back and they'd be ripped and stuff and they'd have to be replaced or repaired. And so she ended up doubling the costume budget because of her... Transgressions. Yes, her her wanton (laughs) ways with that. And then the other thing that increased the costume budget is her husband, Sid Luft, who was a producer who wasn't entitled to any costumes. He really liked James Mason's suits and stuff. So he went to the same tailor and had a whole bunch of suits made for himself to the tune of $75,000 worth wow. of suits and haberdashery. Back in the day. Yeah, on the on the, the, the uh, movie production budget, which is, was not okay. That's they did get shady. in trouble with that later, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's why the budget ballooned from $3 million to $6 million, which made it the most expensive film to date that had been made. Wow, really? Yeah. To that okay. to, to that day, of course, it probably quickly yeah. topped that. But so those oh, side note: the internet mm-hmm. says that Janet Gaynor is only five feet tall. So one only one inch taller teeny, than Judy. Tiny, tiny little women. So there was a huge amount of cost overruns, and and Judy was late. She didn't show up. She had, was sick a lot and had this. This was an issue that Marilyn Monroe had too. But Marilyn also had a huge amount of. Inability to remember lines, it was affecting her mentally, and a lot of it was she had such a deep, deep, deep lack of self-worth and self-consciousness that she was petrified and she had so little confidence that to go in front of the camera and to do the work was... It took an increasing amount of force of will, which she didn't have. Whereas Judy, her once she was on the set, knew her lines. She hit every mark. She hmm. could do things in one take. She could sing the songs because from the time she was two, she had been a performer. And her professionalism and her ability to assert her will to do her work, that always kicked in. It was just getting her there. So she wasn't late sitting in her dressing room, not willing to come out or unable to remember her lines or required a lot of extra take. She was able to perform. And you can see that in the film. She's just sharp and bright. She is. Yeah, 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 she is. They don't have to do any cuts to make it seem like she's got her shit together. She just does, yeah. She absolutely does. Uh, One other little interesting note about this film is that um, James Mason, his Norman Maine, uh, his house is uh, this fancy Hollywood house. Well, apparently Sid Luft loved the, the furniture in it so much, he bought it and took it home. And so the daughter, Lorna Luft, said that for years, you know, she if she watched that movie, it was the furniture in their house. That's so funny. <laughs> it looked just like their house. <laughs> oh, that was kind of interesting. Another interesting tidbit before we get into any kind of specifics we need to wind up with is that um, in 1963, so that was... Nine years after the the film, Judy Garland, this is very near the end of her life, but she had managed to get a TV show, a variety TV show, and it it was the Judy Garland show, and she had guests, and she sang, and you know, it was just kind of like one of those shows. Well, one of her guests was the new, hot, rising star of Barbara Streisand, Uh and they sang together a duet. And as we know, Barbara Streisand in 1976 will be the re- star of the next reprise the role. Yes, yeah, Star yeah. is Born. Yeah, I thought interesting. That was... So Judy is, you know, very touching in this, and she's just Judy Garland. I mean, mm-hmm. she's fantastic. 
And I think that other than that musical number that they could have taken out and the lack of the developmental film of their uh, burgeoning relationship, even without that, just seeing the photograph and listening to the audio, I was touched. Mm-hmm. And this movie would have been so amazing. I, I hope someday they find that. They did find that piece of their engagement. but Yeah, yeah, they, they restored the film part in the scene we talked about when they get engaged. Yeah, if they find the other stuff. That, that would, would be, be pretty cool. fantastic because it, it's it was... It's gotta be somewhere. <laughs> it was so touching. I loved it. And then, um, and then, is there anything else in specific in there other than the last bit? I think there are a few things that are a little less successful in this version. Unfortunately, the main thing being the length... But then also, like, for some reason I didn't like, and this this is just probably just me, I don't know how they could have fixed this, but I just didn't like James Mason for a little while until we really got into the movie, which is fine. You don't have to like him. Uh, that's not necessarily the point. But I, I don't know, the way he was just hounding Judy, I was like, ah. But, but the, all the other guys hound the woman. Yeah. I didn't think he hounded her any more than anybody else. I just came away with the impression I know, that you I didn't wanted like him to be different. <laughs> I know you didn't like him. I know I know you didn't. I, I totally that doesn't didn't. mean I disliked him for the rest of the movie, though. Right. I've, I felt like his coming to the realization that he's going to die and everything, that scene, he might have been one of the best ones. Like, that was... You mean that he's thing. deciding to die? Yeah. Not that he's going to, but... Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Well, when he's listening... Because they show his face as he's listening to her talking. Yeah, I thought it was that he really was in torture. And he goes into the ocean too, right? Yeah. The last two have different ways in which mm-hmm. the man leaves the picture. And the other, okay, and the other way that it's less successful as a movie is the ending because it's just not as strong as the previous version. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Basically, she says, um, "This is." She didn't say this is Mrs. Norman Maine. I can't even remember. I think now. she says this is Mrs. Vicky Maine, or like she like she doesn't take his full name, but she right. Right, she doesn't. It's not Mrs. This is Mrs. Norman Maine. Right. Why don't you look? Which it up? almost feels to me like she's not taking ownership of it. Right. Which is funny because that's you know technically the opposite is you know to be like I am the I am Mrs. Norman Maine is the opposite of taking ownership of your name. You know. Yeah, but. exactly. Is exactly. Well, I'll save my discussion of James Mason until we're going to have a portion at the end of we're going to rank our favorite Norman Maines, even though they're not all named Norman Maine, uh, at the end. Hint, hint, little preview. <laughs> James Mason is my number one. Mm-hmm. So in the final scene in the movie, plays out kind of similarly to the previous version. She says the line, hello everyone, this is Mrs. Norman Maine, to an, an auditorium. She's going to do like a performance or sing a song in tribute. But it just doesn't have the same impact because we couldn't even remember that that was what she said. We thought she said something different and less impactful because it just wasn't memorable. Well, this is why I think Wellman is a better director than George Cukor, um, generally speaking, not in every instance. But the way Wellman in the 1934 version shoots this, he's not that far away, but she comes up to the microphone to speak and he comes in and he's tight on her face and he gives her time to steal herself and get into her feeling and into her heart. And then she looks up diagonally sort of as if she's speaking to the world and she's saying to the world through this microphone, this is Mrs. Norman Maine. Not only is she saying the world, she's saying it with pride. Mm-hmm. She's saying it with great pride. Whereas in the Judy Garland one, what Kukor uh, does is he's she's in a big theater, which I think is fine, but she's in a big theater. I think it's less effective. But. Yeah, okay. 
they're in a big theater and he's way in the back up in the gods with the camera and looking down on this stage and the stage has a swath of light with a microphone in it and she comes out to speak and he um i don't know what the word is but he pans in on her i guess pan is sideways but anyway he moves toward her with the camera and he he comes in and he comes in he comes closer and closer and closer and closer and closer until he gets her in the frame so we can see her but what we see is we see her torso her full torso and her face and we see the columns to the side of her so basically she's framed with a whole bunch of space around her showing the proscenium of of the theater stage and you see the swath of light, and we're far enough away that you can actually even see the shadow of her body in the light on the stage. So basically, there's a lot of stuff around her. So he doesn't come in tight enough, one. And also, since we're already up looking down at her on the angle, she's looking at us. She's looking us in the eye, rather than us looking at her, and she's looking up and beyond us to the world. And that, that shot that, that uh, Kukor does is, I agree, is less effective, and you don't feel the heart swelling. And frankly, I love Judy, but I don't think she des- delivers the line as well. Mm-hmm. I think maybe she's going for that, that personal struggle and tragedy. Yeah. And that, that pride element is really, like, obviously it's bitter, sweet, and everything, but it, it really, that's the message, right? Is that she's like, he may have been a degenerate alcoholic but I loved this man, and he's extremely important. So I do think that it's less effective, and every version is less effective than the 19th. So we're just going to say that every time. Every time, time. Yeah. Point, We'll point out to you why. And then a couple other things about this film that I think that are important and that make it more, more touching, because it brings, it's got the Hollywood glitz. It shows you the, the fantastic numbers and the dancing and the singing, and then it shows you the work that goes on behind it and how hard they work and um, the makeup and the artifice and everything that goes into it as well as it shows you the, the, the sort of the glamour of their love story and at the same time Judy Garland sits in her in her dressing room and says I am so angry sometimes I hate him right that's that's actually what I remembered that I wanted to talk oh, okay. about just now and that they give her more room to have a full spectrum of feeling about it, um, a realistic spectrum of feeling about this person that you care about who has these completely destructive addictions. Yeah, and she hates him because he won't let her maybe save him. Or even because he's a distraction from her work at this point. Yeah. He's definitely a drag. Um, and it's very interesting because she there's a scene where she comes home from a full day, 12 hours, whatever, of working at the at the studio, makeup and hair and getting up at six in the morning and everything. And she comes in and he's just been waiting like a little dog, a little sad little dog, waiting for her to come home because he's got nothing else. And he's just waiting for her. And she comes in and he's all sad. And so she actually literally, and I don't mean that in the figurative sense, does a song and dance number, a full-on song and dance number for him to get him to laugh and be happy. And he's laughing and he's happy and he feels, you know, th- th- this is like what he needs. But she's just worked a whole day of 12, right. 14 hours at the studio. I, she's doing like that. Like that's, you know, when people talk about like the kind of extra labor, I, I don't know about the term emotional labor, but the kind of extra work that women that women tend to take on or have 
be saddled with in a relationship like that's it. Yeah, is it is it women or is is it just anybody who is connected to a person who is codependent and uh, maybe uh, a substance abuse? Because I can yeah. certainly see a man doing that too. And I would say that would be the gendered cliche. Of yeah, it. you're right. Yeah, because there have been plenty of men who have had the same the same burden mm-hmm. in, in a way but yeah this this definitely shows that and uh yeah so she does this whole song and dance and by the end he's laughing but and you can see it's a relief she's she has given him cerise from his pain so so in that way it's also kind of sweet and charming and it is sweet lovely but then, you know someone knocks on the door and calls him mr vicky lester and, and, and then he immediately crumbles. shuts down yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just, and that just causes him to crumble he's just got nothing inside which is no so stability. sad that scene really makes me feel for her because you're like, oh my God, you worked so hard. Makes me feel for him. Yeah. Too. I, I really do feel for him. Because he's because he's taking it in. I feel like in some of the other ones, like in the Frederick March, maybe that's what it is. He didn't seem to take it in. But you can see that he appreciates what she's doing. And he needs her to do it. And he's taking it in. It just isn't enough and can never be enough because of whatever caused him to have that emptiness inside. But he's taking it in and appreciating it and... and I think that, that that makes see that's what makes me like him more. Yeah, and the other thing is is that it reminds he reminds me of and I don't know that this was intended by them at all. Reminds me of like someone like a John Gilbert who was a silent movie star, top like the top star of the world. He was a a lover and almost married Greta Garbo, and his he was horrible alcoholic. He died in his thirties, I think it was. Wow. He was so, and he had an affair with Marlena Dietrich. In fact, she said she was there when he was dying. Huh. Um, and he he's just one of those people who clearly was so empty, and he was charming, and he drew people, and they wanted to love him and take care of him. They wanted to do it, but it was it was just pointless. And so th- that's what this this Norman Maine in particular reminds me of. So. I think that that was kind of an important point. Was there something else that we were talking about that was an important aspect? Oh, there's the slapping, the slapping incident. Oh, yeah. In the 1937 and the 54 version, there's an incident where Vicky is receiving an award and being lauded, and Norman is so drunk, he comes stumbling into the event. And being having been a star, he has access. Right. And it doesn't play out like this in every film, but this is a scene that's uh, central to every film. Yeah. The, the scene is, the yes. The awarding and the, embar- yeah. and the embarrassment. He comes in drunk and everything. But in the first two, what happens is she's standing behind him, and he's going on in this self-pitying, drunken speech while she's supposed... It's her moment. And he flings his hand back in a gesture, and she's standing behind him, and he smacks her really hard. And <gasps> and then he then he's and his shame kicks in. That's just I don't know why I brought that up, but it's it's impo- it's a key scene. It is. I mean, I feel like maybe because it's pivot. Like we talked about how important how maybe the only self value he has comes externally, right mm-hmm. through his like career and and everything. And so as that degenerates more and more, he has nothing to hold on to because the love isn't enough. Well, and it might so, it might also be because he feels bad about himself. And her getting an award, of course, is exacerbating that. So we do have this man who truly loves the woman. He truly is promoting her, and it really is there. But he's also a human being. Mm-hmm. And what ha- what I think happens without them saying it is that he's jealous. And, it, well, in the last movie, they do overtly talk about this. But something in him, so he drinks because he's jealous, and then that frees him up to go and be an ass and to steal the spotlight from her in the only way he can. 
Right. And so there's the shame, and then there's also the pub- public aspect of that. Like, he's, he's irredeemable in the public eye if he wasn't already, like, in that moment. And so I think that's part of what's pivotal about it. And, and it causes her embarrassment. And right, because he's leaking onto her at that Yes. On purpose. Right. Uh, even though it's unconscious, it's on purpose. And I think that that smack that he gives her accidentally is really almost a Freudian slip. Mm-hmm. And that once that happens, it's like... I feel like it brings it to his consciousness what he's doing. Right. What he's doing to her. And he's not even being as loving as he could be. So it's a really important scene in all the films. Yeah. We almost forgot. That would be terrible. <laughs> all right. So then the, then we get the 1976 version, which is Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And if you're not familiar, God, is anybody not familiar with Barbara Streisand? I she's like, old now. I think everybody knows her name and maybe her image, but yeah. she's not super familiar. Well, she she made her breakout in the New York stage uh, in music, not musical comedy, but in musicals, in Funny Girl. I played about Fanny Bryce, who was a comic and a singer in the uh, Ziegfeld Follies. Mm. And so she made a big, big hit with that. And then opposite her is Chris Christopherson, who was a mostly known as a musician at that point, and then was breaking into acting and doing acting as well. And so age-wise... Now, this is interesting. Barbara was 34 and Christofferson was 40. So, a little bit older, not yeah. much. Basically contemporaries, really. Yeah. And then uh, this film was directed by a guy named Frank Pearson. He was a, the writer for two of my top ten movies of all time, Dog Day Afternoon and Cool Hand Luke. Those but are good freaking movies. They are good, but he hadn't directed much of anything except some TV episodes and tv movies i guess so he really wasn't an experienced director but somehow they decided to hire him and what's interesting is is they took the same story and and they wanted to make it contemporary and rewrite it and bring in more realism and feminism and so forth because this was going to be for barbara and again in a in a mirror of uh, judy garland's situation barbara streisand had a production company and her boyfriend John Peters, who was actually a hair designer. Huh. Or a, a hair designer? Right? Yeah. A hair, hair stylist? Stylist, yeah. <laughs> he made a wig for her in a movie she'd previously done. So they were together. So she decides he's going to be the producer. She's a producer, but he's going to be the producer. And they do a production company. And so they're going to do this film. So they decide to get it rewritten by Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn. Oh, interesting. Now, anybody who knows about American literature knows that these are two key figures in 20th century literature. John Gregory Dunn, he died recently, but Joan Didion is still alive. And there's a documentary, actually, if you're interested in her, called The Center Will Not Hold. And it's a very good documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, There's so many out there that are just middling. And this is really pretty good. And it taught me a lot about her that I didn't know and about her, her life and her history and her work and so forth. In fact, she was basically what they called long-form journalism, mostly, uh, along the lines of like Truman Capote and uh, Tom Wolfe. She was very much of that ilk. And she wrote a lot of books. And in fact, I think she's still writing. And she was one of the first journalists to really, uh, of note, of renown, to put out there that uh, she believed that the Central Park Five were not guilty. Hmm. So that's just a little bit about Joan Didion, who wrote this. So anyway, the two of them were the credited as the writers on this. And then John Peters was a producer. And very interestingly, he was one of the many five or six producers of the 2018 version as well. Huh. So, yeah, there's a through line in a lot of these. Right, there, there totally is. And so, basically, uh, when they 
first going to create the film or started talking about it early on before it got to Barbara Streisand. Joan Didion and Dunn wanted to adapt this for James Taylor and Carly Simon. Oh. You know who they are? I would have been, yeah, I know James Taylor. Okay, Carly Simon was also, she was a female. She, um. She was a female? She was a female uh, a singer and <laughs> huge, huge star okay. and singer, really good singer. If you've ever heard Nobody Does It Better, the James Bond song, that's Carly Simon. They were married, but they didn't want to get into it, the film and, and do it together because it was cut too close to the bone because James Taylor was a heroin addict and had a lot of troubles with yeah, that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, from what I've heard from his interviews, he's kicked the habit now and is good. But at the time, he was uh, he was an addict. So that was not uh, somewhere where they wanted to go together. So it went through various iterations. And as they were thinking about who was going to do this and it hung around for a while, they were thinking, well, maybe, um, you know, who could who could do this film? And so Barbara Streisand ended up getting attached to it, and they thought about maybe Elvis would be good. That would be interesting. Yeah. And uh, they thought about um, Neil Diamond. They thought about Mick Jagger. (laughs) They thought about Marlon Brando. (laughs) Now age appropriate. Exactly. So finally when it got down to brass tacks, it was going to be Streisand and Chris Christopherson. They wanted to have some rewrites on the script because, you know, Streisand wanted... I think she wanted to be more, woman to be more independent, more focused. She wanted to kind of shift the dynamic a little bit. So uh, the director, Pearson, since he was a great screenwriter, he rewrote the script himself to match what they needed. So then they went from there. But basically, the story remains the same, except it's in the music business, right? I don't think there was any real change from it. So we don't really need to go into the specifics of the story, except that in this one, her name is not Esther Blodgett. It's Esther Hoffman. I think possibly to give a nod to Barbara's Jewish heritage, so she became Esther Hoffman. Also, Hoffman is not as ugly as Blodgett a name. And, you know, that's just Barbara. It it was kind of interesting because that does, this movie does introduce the element of looks insecurity because this is the first one where she's like, aha, my nose is too big and stuff. And they carried that through with Lady Gaga in the next Right. Film. Well, and that and that came out of Barbara's real life because when she started out, they wanted her to get a nose job, and what she specifically said, and what you know, whether there were other reasons as well, is she said, well, she wasn't going to do it because it might change her sound, because you know, it might change the timbre of her voice, and she didn't want to monkey with her instrument. That's yeah. extremely valid. Yeah. Plus, the fact is, uh, what the fuck is wrong with Barbara's nose? No, it's, it's great. E- <laughs> it's quote unquote in those days ethnic, meaning. Her nose looks Jewish, which is back in those days, it's a thing. And God knows how many women didn't, you know, and men didn't want to look Jewish. because. Right. So you got to give Barbara big props for sticking by who she is and being proud of that. And her nose is fine. Her nose is, she's a, she has a gorgeous nose. Mm-hmm. It's just not the little pixie nose. Anyway, Chris Christopherson, his name in the, in the film is John Norman Howard. So they keep a nod to it, but, I mean, that's as bland a name as you're going to get. Yeah, right? I know. It's not a very rock star name. It's no. boring. Yeah, and so he's a rock star, and, and so they have him doing all the rock star bad behavior. So this is not just an alcoholic. He's also a drug addict. It looks like snorting coke or, I don't know, drugs, but doing whatever drugs. Right. They give him a little a little uh, bump before he goes on stage and stuff. Right, and pills and stuff like that. And since Christofferson was a real musician... He played the guitar and he sang and so forth. Now, you didn't care for his style at all. Not really. And I mean, the songs weren't good. This has a bunch of songs in it. And unlike the 54 version, 
the songs are not good. They're boring. They're so boring. Oh my god. And that's why this movie is yeah. boring. <laughs> the most memorable one is the one that introduces um Esther Hoffman and she's like it's a song about like how women are spiders who are gonna yeah. trap you and she's got like these two backup vocalists and it's very campy and kind of weird that that would be her introductory song. And the only other the other standout song at the time was a song called Evergreen, which was a top 40 hit. It got an Oscar for Best Original Song. It got a Grammy. And it was it was an amazing hit. I mean, I remember hearing it all the time on the radio. And I, I'll never forget, it's a, Our love is ever, ever green. <laughs> you know, so she's got this song. And it it's so funny because... Christofferson is this rock star. He's playing rock and yeah. roll music, you know, the hard electric guitar. And Barbara, she is not. She is a uh, a popular song singer, a Broadway tunes singer. She is, does not Their rock. Their styles are so different. And they don't mesh them well. And there's no way she would be in that position. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not what she does. And, and she was certainly very successful in what she does in, in real life, but this was it was terrible. And so she was trying to be something she wasn't, and that that looked that did not sit well on her. The other thing is is that comes up in all of her films that I've noticed, but this one very much so because it's hers, <laughs> is this egocentric sense that seems to be fueled by her insecurity. In every movie, men are always commenting about what a great ass she has. They always want to see her ass or just your ass. All the time. So she, clearly she has some kind of insecurity about her ass. That she always has to have the men on screen complimenting her ass. I mean, it's a fine ass. Or maybe it's because she has an insecurity about her face. I think she has an insecurity about everything. There's she's, a lot of shots of her butt. Yes. Like, as she's like standing on chairs and stuff. Right, there is. There's a lot of shots of her butt. And so there's something There's something there. Mm-hmm. Just even the way she speaks, the way they present, everything she says and does has this sense of specialness, of projecting how special she is. And a talent, beauty, whatever, the specialness. It's palpable. Yeah, no, I can feel it too. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing that holds her back. Because she's not untalented. There's one scene where, in the end, where she actually cries. She can act, but she can't get beyond that defense. Yeah, yeah, it limits her range. (laughs) Yeah, it totally does. And then you had some things to say about Chris Christopherson. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, well, first of all, the the wardrobe is really interesting in this one because it's so 70s. And some of it's really good, and some of it's really bad. Um, but all, because, her, but all, her clothes are fantastic, and that's because they're all old and vintage. Totally. And and it's distracting because you're going, what top? That's amazing. <laughs> oh, that looks good. And she got a huge backlash uh, because of that. Because in the in the credits, it says from her wardrobe, it says Miss Streisand's clothes from dot 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 her closet. And apparently these clothes were all her own clothes that she, you know, had collected and bought and wore in her real life. And since she was a producer, she's trying to keep the budget down because this one went way over budget, too. So she just used her own clothes. And at the time, apparently she got a lot of shit for that. Why? Being cheap or being... I don't know. Self-set? I don't know. You can go back and see if you can find some of the articles. Weird. But apparently she had to defend herself on that score. Jeez. But you want to say something about Chris Christopherson? <laughs> I well, I mean, I just don't think he's that hot. Like, I he doesn't wear a shirt very often. That's true. He's mo- almost always shirtless or shirt way open, right? Yeah, he's shirtless on the cover. I don't know. I mean, his his torso is 
fine. Yeah. I just I don't think his face is that cute. I don't know. It no, looks it crowded. Isn't. It looks like all his features are crowded on his face by his facial hair. I don't know. It does. Well, the hair the haircut is not great. But see, I was eighteen at the time this came out. Yeah. And Chris Christopherson was very hot I'm at sure. that time. And of course, he's older, so you know he's like this hot older man. And so I always thought he was pretty hot. And I'd seen him in other things too, where he looked better. Um, but uh, uh, so I have I have a nostalgic. Uh, but he certainly would not. I would not put him number one on my list of of hottest Norman Mains by any. He's not nowhere near. I don't know how I feel about the Norman. I don't know if I can find one Norman Main that really tickles my fancy. Well, well, let's we'll get to that. You want to talk about that now, or you want to finish this? Let's finish this. All right. Well, then stop talking about Shut it. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So the the film basically, I can talk a little bit about the dynamics behind the scene not that much but apparently one of the reasons this thing went so far over and there was so much conflict was one that chris christopherson was just sick and tired and fed up with the fact that barbara and the director couldn't get along and apparently from day one they were in serious conflict and you can kind of see from what i've heard what it was all about was basically barbara was one of the producers and she was funding this and so she expected that she was going to have a lot of say, and that was her expectation, and that she would have control so she could create good quality. So she had a meeting with the director before the first day, and they talked about all the setups and the lighting and how things would go. And then she came in to work, and the first day she found everything, he just changed everything without telling her. So I can understand her point, that she was really pissed. I can kind of understand his point, too, because he's the director. So I don't know what their conversation was before he was hired on and what their understanding was, if it had been made explicit or not. I don't know. So it's hard to say who's, who's in the right or wrong. But basically, from that point on... Just sounds really frustrating. It was yeah. absolute hell, and both of them were miserable, and it was all this fighting. And then she and John Peters had all kinds of fighting going on and, and disagreements. And Christofferson was just yanking his hair out. He just goes, just... I can't do this with one person telling me to do one thing and one person telling me to do something else. Just, just get your act together, you know? Then be professional about this. So there was so there was a lot of conflict about that. And believe me, the media picked up on it and I I this is like burned in my brain. It's like it's like an event like the moon landing or something. I remember this, How you know. Funny. It was a big deal and I think that it had a lot to do with tearing down of the film critically. I see what the critics were saying and I agree the film is not that great. But I think the vitriol, as, that, as I remember it, that this film got had to do with the fact that it was a woman trying to take power. Mm. She was in charge. She was going to take control. This was her film. This was her vehicle. And she made no bones about it. I mean, and, they, and, and the fact that there was problems and that the film actually ended up not being that great was a way for them to then really rip into her. And uh, I, I think that's too bad. That is too bad. That's really interesting, that socio-miasma that affects critical reception. Yeah. And you can't just laud it for being a feminist movie, because in, in a lot of ways it's not, one. And in other ways, the feminism element, great. But if you don't make a good film, it's not good. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and, they did, and they did not. The, the film, it, it takes the time to show the building of their relationship. It does. And it, it has lots and lots of songs in it that are really boring. And then it introduces the scene that they repeat in the 2018 version. I'm not really sure why this like caught their fancy, but of like a bathtub scene where she's like putting like makeup and fake eyelashes on his face and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like feminine, quote unquote, feminizing, feminizing him. <laughs> yeah. You know, quote unquote. Uh, and then 
Yeah, it, it, it's weird. She's got weird scenes. And essentially, the difference here is that when he starts to tear her career down, she just says outright to him, I'm not going to let you do this to my life. She tells him outright. And that's supposed to be a call to him. And so then he tries to be good. And then... I mean, I almost feel like I saw relief in him when yeah, she says that. He's yeah. like, thank God I can't, you know, mess you up. <laughs> right. But then she goes back with him. Yeah. <laughs> and so essentially, she's not strong enough to individuate apparently right and that is what leads him to his like end which is more questionable or more murky in this one yeah they don't he drives off with a big can of beer drinking a can of beer in the morning so it couldn't have been that i know right that's what i was thinking (laughs) yeah he wasn't that drunk when he was driving his car and he drove it really fast then he has a car wreck right and then she comes out and she she cries over his body and that was the one i thought authentic scene in the whole film yeah they were had real impact i agree there was some nice stuff. I liked their parts of their relationship and stuff. But yeah, that was the only really gripping yeah, moment. Where you felt anything. Where, you, where like I wasn't like, you know, looking at my knitting instructions or <laughs> thinking about playing some solitaire. I was or, looking at the extras in the background. Yeah, yeah. The they, aesthetic in this one is so 70s. It's really interesting. It but. really is. Well, the, the rock concerts were actually real rock concerts. Right. <laughs> that, that, that Actually, the headliners were people like... Santana and Peter Frampton and stuff and so those crowds were for like real real and then they would film during the the concert wow that's pretty interesting so that was a way they cut some costs I guess (laughs) yeah so I think that what sums this up is the final scene which I think is I don't know they they seem to get progressively weaker yeah Um, this one is even weaker than the one before because in this one she's on a rock stage and it just does it, it takes her from the side doesn't it or like three quarters yeah. Not even full on face. And it's like, it's a, it's not a tribute. It's like a fundraiser for some unspecified cause. And she comes up and she says, and she's going to sing a song. It was a totally lame song that she sung. It was terrible. But she says, this is Mrs. Esther Hoffman Howard. Right. Now so that she, has no punch at all. <laughs> she tacks his last name onto her name. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm still me. But here's his last name. It's as if the, the screenwriter or the actors, Barbara Streisand or whoever made that line, didn't understand the import. And so it, it, it just strips the whole film of complexity altogether. And there's, yeah, and there's no commitment. Like, there's no emotional commitment to it. Yeah. Because they didn't even know why it was important. So, anyway, yeah. that one was not that good. So, the, let me get to the 2018 one. Let's zip right along. And that's starring Lady Gaga as Allie, who has no last name until she marries, uh, you notice that. Until she marries Jackson Maine. <laughs> yeah, is that true? Yeah, I, uh, yeah I even if you look at IMDb, sure. it's just Allie. Huh, how And then funny. starring Bradley Cooper as uh, Jackson Maine, because Norman is not cool enough. Right. So his name is Jackson Maine. And it's got to be more country, yeah. Right. He's also a director and screenwriter. And um, Lady Gaga's 32, and they, Bradley Cooper was 43 at the time. So got that, that back to that gap again. And then uh, basically it was uh, MGM. So we talked about that. And Peter's Entertainment, which is John Peters. He's oh, one of the okay. producers of the... He's back again, John too. John Peters, How back funny. again, yes. And originally, when they wanted to redo this, this was back a little while ago, Clint Eastwood was thinking about doing it. He didn't end up doing it, but he was going to do it. And so there were a whole bunch of people that they considered for it. Originally, it was uh, it was on for sure for Aaliyah, but she died so yeah. tragically in, a, in an airplane crash. About she was that. so gosh young, uh, amazingly yeah. young. Yeah, so it was going to be her. It was going to go forward with her, and then she was gone. So then they thought about doing it with Beyonce, but Beyonce got pregnant, so then it, that put it off. And then they were thinking about J Lo, 
Rihanna, Janelle Monet, wow. Demi Lovato. Oh my goodness. Keisha. It's interesting they're taking it out of the the white. White. Out yeah. of the white realm, yeah, exactly. And then But then they didn't. <laughs> and then for the for the men they were thinking about and I, they're not matched up to any of these women, but mm. Jamie Foxx, Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, who would be so awesome. Leo DiCaprio <laughs> to be to be Norman May- Oh my god, he would be so he good. He would be really good. I would love that. Tom Cruise, who would have been awesome. I don't love Tom Cruise, but he would be perfect for this <laughs> <Who> role. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely perfect. A Johnny Depp, who I absolutely hate, but yeah, okay. And then Will Smith. Now, Will Smith would have been a soulful tender. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, uh, Jackson, Jackson, Maine. He would have been more like a, he's more like a Bradley Cooper version, right. I think, of it. I wonder if they got all those, act, any of those actors, if they would have gone for the music or if they would have taken it back to this. I, I guess they would have to stick with the music. Well, certainly with, if the, if the female were any of these ones that are listed, right. because these are all uh, musicians. So anyway, it ended up being Bradley Cooper. It follows the 76 version pretty closely yeah. in a lot of ways, although it took a... The 76 version was kind of meandering to me. Like, yeah, it was. It, in, in the way that it did develop their dynamic, but it, it made it meandering. And this one is more straightforward, Yeah, the plot, the plot line. In the other one, the emotional line is pretty straightforward. Yeah. But the plot line was meandering because they go here, they go there. Yeah. Whereas this one, the plot is straightforward and the emotional line is straightforward. And... I don't think it uh, is served by what they're doing that that well. Yeah, it, the craft is there. The, the craft of creating the, the script. Just like the earlier ones had a very good craft. I just have to say, I didn't feel the connection between the characters, even though they took the time. And, and that first hour was kind of sweet. Well, we were really into the first hour, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like, we were we were quite, like, engaged. And then we went out, and we came back, and we finished it. And it completely dragged down our opinion of the whole thing. Yeah. And I think it even colored my opinion of the first hour. Right, I think that that's what it is. Yeah. Like, I was enjoying it, maybe even the first 40 minutes, maybe not even the first hour, where they first meet, and they're getting to know each other, and she sings La Vie en Rose, which is good, and all that, and then they bring in the, the color of the... Drag d- community, I guess. And the, the drag, is that I the right... I'm yeah. sorry, thanks for updating my language. It, yeah, drag they, community. Oh, I was just going to say, they bring them in as... I mean, it's color, but it's also... A fan service in the ter- for Lady Gaga in terms of you know her fan base and and her pride with having the queer community be into her music. She's linked with that, and I guess she's that's a big demographic of her listenership. And she's also been sort of people have intended to insult her yeah. by comparing her to looking like a drag queen or something, um, which you know is completely off base in so many ways. I think that oftentimes that diversity or that like that sort of peripheral inclusion of diversity can feel calculated. Well, I don't. I didn't feel like revenue, it was. But I. But in this one, like, yeah, I felt like she was more saying like "fuck you" to those. those yeah, this, people. this is part of me because the movie starts out there, and so she's like, "These are these are my people, mm-hmm. you know, and they're they're my base. They're my you know, and and throughout the film, whenever they do show up, they're always there as a base and a support, which I just think is her nod to them saying thank you." Yeah. You know, and I'm not ashamed. And if somebody says, I look like you, I'm proud, mm-hmm. you know, and that's no insult to me. So I think I, so I like that. Yeah. I, I like that energy and I like that self-assertion that she had. I feel like the problem is one that, that Lady Gaga, as dynamic as she is as a performer in her own realm, is not an actor. She does not shame herself. She does not, she's not bad in any way. She's Okay, she's adequate in this role. But this role, in order to create that deep connection to really reach into somebody's heart, you have to be good. You have to be very good 
at the at the role. And and the other problem is is that she's acting against an actor who is sincere and nice as he seems is not a good actor. I've never seen him do anything where he was all that he was again, he's adequate. And he's way over compensated for his abilities. <laughs> Sorry, that's how I feel. Yeah, that's fair. And he's not even good looking. <laughs> yeah, I think he's better looking because I can only really compare him with uh, Chris Christopherson. I think he's better looking than Chris Christopherson. No, I don't think so. He's got a pointy nose. It looks like a witch's nose. I don't mind that. <laughs> I, I also kind of think he, he. I think he must remind me of somebody that I like. So I just well, already. Be, I like, like his him. coloring. I really like his dark hair and blue eyes. Yeah, you know, I, I like that, and I do like his smile. And I do feel that Bradley Cooper, like when he looks at Lady Gaga, I feel the sincerity of his desire to project love and acceptance and support onto her, both as an actor, which is why he's a likable person, to her as an actor-to-actor, person-to-person, and as character-to-character. I just don't think it ever connects. That's, that's my thing. So I can see it. I can see the mechanism, but I don't, I don't think they succeed. I think they do have good chemistry, and the best chemistry they have is when they're on stage. When they're singing. There's one, yeah. so, there's one song they sing where I, I do feel like it's yeah. very connected, yes. Yeah, so the music in this one, there's a couple songs in this one which are good, I think. In the 76, I don't think there's a, really a good song in that movie. No, I agree. Uh, unless you love Evergreen. Uh, <laughs> which I do not. I didn't even at the time. <laughs> and so this one, it it's hard to say that the music is good because it's not all good. It's mostly just those couple of songs that are good. That said, I have had that the riff from that one song that he sings by himself on stage, the one where he's like, Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Yeah. That's been stuck in my head literally all week. So <laughs> it's got a good hook. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that that take. I, exactly. And I think that it's a shame that they missed a bet. Mm-hmm. That as we, And you know the trajectory, so I don't have to tell that he kills himself, da-da-da. And at the end, she sings a song. So she sings a song that supposedly he wrote, which was a different song and not a very good song than the really good song that they sang at the beginning instead of bringing it home and bookending it. She should have just reprised that one again, yeah. Absolutely. It was. It, it just was like, ugh, that didn't work. And the song was not good and it was boring. But I have to say, okay, is there anything else you want to say about there? Well, I think we should talk about his, or the suicide. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. do. That's okay. exactly what I was going to talk about. Exactly. Um, aside from that, I don't know. The wardrobe's good. It's a beautiful movie. Like, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's, But there, there is kind of an emptiness in it because I feel like the two central characters, they, like, filled in the space around with some people. And, like, maybe his, like, but it feels kind of empty somehow to me. It's, it's that the space between them is not filled, which is what yeah. I was saying is he's trying to project to her. And she's just trying to hold her space by, because she's, you know, she's not an actor. And so the connection, the thread, that's why, like, Leo would be so amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think Leo would have brought her out of her, I think he could have supported her through that because of his fire. Because Cooper is sweet. He really is sweet. But sweetness is not going to do it. You need some fire. Cause, and Gaga, I mean, Gaga, her performances, I mean, if anybody is, like, packed with fire, Mm-hmm. A volcanic fire when she's performing on stage it's her so she needed she needed somebody to help her show how to do that on screen right which she didn't have so i agree with you on that uh, the connection wasn't there and also i feel like that there was an emptiness in comparison to the other films in that the complexity of the film is just unraveled and all the little threads are just lying there because she's supposed to be a self-directed woman and it is good in that she is going along and so they try to make it about that trope of the art 
this one more than any. Right. The art versus and the love. And so it, can you be true to who you are and be commercial? And if you're commercial, are you selling out? It's really the same question. But it, which that is Lala, so funny because he's commercial. His character is commercial, right? Like right. But clearly. he's but he's doing what he's doing what he wants to do. Yeah. And so, but so it's the same question that La La Land asks uh, in in its way. And the thing is, is that he wants her to be authentic in a certain way that he's decided is authentic, and she decides she's going to be a pop star. And they never really make it clear whether that's authentic to her or whether she just decides she wants to be successful. But she makes a decision about what she wants to do. And he has trouble with that. And then that impacts their romantic relationship. And she basically stands up to him and says, you know, ultimately I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Which is all good. Like, that could have been good. Right. But it just, it fell down on... But they, well, they didn't know how to make it complicated. How, how to keep the trope working within it. Mm-hmm. It sort of destroyed the trope. Because then later when she says uh, he needs her and so she's going to stay with him, uh, like in the other films, basically what she says is, well, I won't go on the European tour. And they keep going, oh, it's big. It's big. He says, oh, I didn't get to go until I was 30. I was year going the first year. Woo. It's big to go on the European tour, which I don't know why that would be because it's not. But then she says, well, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go this year. I'll work on my second album. And he's like, then he kills himself. Right. So she's going on the European tour. I'm sorry. It's not enough. Yeah. That's just not enough. Yeah, they didn't know how to make it work, and they didn't know why they... I, I feel like the... I don't think the stakes were high enough for him to kill himself. Yeah. Well, and that's where they bring in the realism of, like, yeah, there have been all these celebrity suicides, and, like, there have been a lot of celebrities that, you know, died in a similar way. Yeah. And so I don't think it's strong enough, but it makes it, like, you have to think, like, the reason he did that is depression and alcoholism, and so it's purely him, and so it really detracts from the message or, like, intention of the entire movie, which is to be about their relationship. Yeah, but there's no trigger for it, and that's the problem. There's no trigger for it because, and also, you know, the dumbness of the fact that is, she doesn't have to give up her European tour. She just just has to agree that he's not going to go on stage with her. Mm -hmm. He can still go with her. Mm-hmm. wherever they go she you know she just says no i'm not going to do the tour unless he performs with me and they're going well that's just not going to happen after he peed himself oh we should say if you haven't seen the film is in the previous films where he gets up and humiliates her and then he backhands her accidentally they don't they can't have that in this one because that's not good that's violence against women yeah, yeah can't can't sure. do that so instead what he does he stands on stage and he kind of goes into days and he pees himself so now he can't go on stage anymore and, and they're going, well, and it's going to ruin you. And it's going to, you're ruining her Which career. Which in this modern day, No way, people are going to feel sorry for her. Right. In fact, it's going to help her career because she's going to get support. All she has support. to do is, really, yeah, like really suppress statement about like, you know, how much I love my husband and right. how we're trying to like Work overcome this together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the things that they're saying um, are too weak. Whereas the the Mr. Mr. Vicky Lester thing in those days. Right. That is a blow. I mean, that is a blow. You know, you have to find something that's going to work in these days. They couldn't find the flexibility within that trope. No. Because we do still, in present day, have these structural, ego-driven... I'm sure they could have found some some way to make it work. Well, no, but. if he had just backhanded her and, and smacked her accidentally. I think that would have been enough for him. You know, and enough for everybody. And, you know, and that, that would have yeah. been something where people would have turned against him. Yeah, totally. He, he didn't just humiliate himself. Right. And even if it was an accident... So that was a big mistake in, in, the, in the writing. And then the other thing we should say is um, the way he dies. Right. Is, and they set this up earlier in that and when he was younger, he thought about hanging himself and, you know, the thing fell down and he, you know, it all 
came to nothing and he ended up being successful. So he ends up going in the garage of their home when she's out and hangs himself. Right. Like when he's supposed to meet her for a concert. And this is a very good point that I didn't even really think about because the movie didn't stick with me after I watched it. But yeah, that that's a shitty thing to do to your partner. And like it happens. But in this movie... Yeah, he's doing it to save her, apparently. Right. So she'll go on the European tour, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because he loves her. Because that they, they, well, you do get that impact. And so maybe if it's just depression, okay. He didn't seem that depressed to me. Because Cooper's not that good of an actor. So he couldn't like really show you depression, in my opinion. Uh, other than by staring. Um, oh, I'm so terrible. But anyway, so what do you do? So his wife is going to come home and find him hanging from the ceiling. Nice. You know, and also the fact is, is that, that in the other versions, and I've made this point, when the man killed himself, and let's assume that, that Chris Christopherson did it on purpose, or that he engaged in such dangerous behavior on purpose, hoping that something might happen, which is kind of suicide and kind of not, is that you always leave, even though you leave a lot of pain, you always leave your partner with a little bit of space to go into and the pain is too much to say, well, maybe it was an accident. You know, maybe it was an accident. Maybe he, you know, he was engaging in dangerous behavior, but he didn't really mean to do it. It just went too far this time. You know, yeah. to leave some space to for the person to step out of their pain for a minute. And he didn't do that. And so I felt like... Bradley Cooper didn't. The Bradley Cooper character. Didn't, didn't do it. And so I felt like then when she goes on stage and they do that whole final thing, the love has been broken. I mean, sure, she's going to be in pain, and maybe she still loves him. I don't know. But the it's the sort of the love beyond the grave, the, the gift of his life to her. It doesn't happen because it's too modern and, and yet also too retrograde. Infuriating. <laughs> and I watched that whole thing. No. And then, and, then, and then in the end, what does she say? She says, this is, this is Allie Maine. Well, she didn't have any last name before that, so I guess that's special. Yeah, she says, this is Allie Mae. And I'm like, well, that just is toothless. That's like a little tiger gumming a muskrat or something. An old tiger gumming a muskrat. Toothless. And then she sings that terrible song. Yeah. And her dress wasn't even that great either. Yeah. I know. Yeah, it was disappointing. and. Yeah. Yeah, the song and the, of course, because I always focus on the lyrics and I'm like, even the lyrics, I don't want to feel another touch, whatever. But it doesn't really encapsulate really good, positive message and themes about their love. No. Even. No, it's just depressing. Yeah. And if it's about him and not about her, like he's saying that, well, he's dead, so I guess he, he won't. he's not going to have to worry about it now. Good point. I don't know. Yeah, I just, that's, I just really felt that. And then the only... <laughs> The only true... Okay, should we talk about the brother? Sure. Okay, Sam uh, Sam Elliott plays the brother. And he's supposedly this older brother who Bradley Cooper... Their father was like an alcoholic and, a, and everything and made basically his horrible childhood, made him depressed. And the brother was a lot older than him, uh, like 15, 20 years older than him. And so he said that Cooper stole his voice. And I'm thinking, what the hell does that mean? Stole your voice. You're like, yeah, they never, like, did he give up his career in order to help? I thought it, it's like he career. said, I, you, you sing, you, you copied me. And now, but the thing is, is, well, he must have been better than you because he's the star and you're not. He didn't, you know, he got, he, he pushed the success and you didn't, or you didn't have the drive if you were as good as that. I don't know. It was dumb. 
it was kind of dumb. And then Cooper says in an emotional scene near the end after he goes to rehab, like, it was always you I looked up to and not to dad. And Sam Elliott, yeah. Yeah. And Sam Elliott's, like, his reaction, his acting is good, so it evoked something in me. But at the same time, it kind of doesn't, it seems kind of weak. Yeah, it was totally weak. I mean, Elliot is, I don't think he, I think he's just an okay actor. People idolize him because once you get a certain age <laughs> yeah. in Hollywood, it's like, oh, you're the, you're the best. He's, he's okay. Well, but, he just, he has this air, he does have the air of like country authenticity. Oh, 100%. You know? <laughs> yes. And that is really what people gravitate to. And given the right circumstance, given the right thing to do, he's very good. And in that moment, he was like the first really authentic human being that I had seen in that film. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, so I appreciated that, that moment. But there's only really one authentic, really emotional connection that I felt. And that was Bradley Cooper and his dog. Right. <laughs> the dog that he's playing with. Uh, it's that the cutest d- goddamn dog I've ever seen. His name is Charlie. And it's the, it's the one that's like waiting for him outside the door. And well, then it's when like, he's, when he's it's swinging. waiting outside the garage door. Yeah. Well, well he's supposedly swinging in the, on the, in the noose. But the, the reason is, I found out, is because Charlie is Bradley Cooper's real life dog. Yeah. So there's true <laughs> chemistry there. <laughs> he was really, he's like a big mop. He yeah. looks like one of those uh, Labradoodles, but long haired. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's, he's like a cute little mop of a dog. So cute. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that part. That's the part I like the best. Yeah. <laughs> and then Andrew Dice Clay plays Allie's father, and he's a driver. And every time she goes over the house, there are like five men sitting in the house, all drinking coffee and sitting around talking. Talking about horse races yeah. or whatever. I know. You're like, yeah, oh, who are these guys? What the hell's going on? Why are they in the house? Yeah. Okay, even if they're drivers, why are they in his house, you know? Is their dad actually supposed to be with the mob? Is there like yeah, a know, whole subplot that, like, that we missed? It? Yeah. Didn't it? It looked like it was some kind of mob thing. Uh, and so anyway, uh, that is our pre-say of the various films and, and their themes and tropes. I think we've covered it all. Um, so I'm going to say that my rating system, and I think yours is probably going to be the same. If I start at number, the bottom, and, and I will put at number five, the 2018 A Star is Born. I think it sucked too much of my time. I'll put at the 1976 A Star is Born. And then I'll put next, What Price Hollywood? So that's third. And then I'll put the 1937 and then the 1954 is at the top with Judy Garland. Would you agree with that? Is that your rating? Yeah, pretty much. I, I w- although, you know, because I can't just number things. There has to, I have to have real, all kinds of wiggle room in my list. Well, well, the number, the, say, well, the, you could say the number one best moment in any of those films was the 1934 final scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so, worth watching that film just to get to that scene. I rank that one as number one for emotional impact in okay. certain ways. Okay. And then I ranked 1954 best overall. And you're not going to rate the rest of them? Yeah, I mean, I agree okay. with the rest. And of course, I'm going to choose as my... Although I, 76 and 2018 are kind of like yeah, they're, tied in yeah, they, they are, they're, they're very tied. But I'm just yeah. more mad about 2018 right now because we're right. into it. It's more modern and yeah, exactly. And yeah. and yeah, how they ended it with the suicide and everything. I'm yeah, like, yeah, I, that that was just a very good point. It brought it down in my esteem. So yeah, it kind of undercut it. And then I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to pick my my favorite norm, my favorite. Well, my favorite uh, Esther Blodgett, we'll just call her Esther Blodgett, is obviously Judy Garland. I think yeah. that was just no brainer. My fi- I, I'm sorry, my favorite Norman Maine is James Mason. Okay. I really like James Mason. I've always liked James Mason. Even when I was a little child and I would watch movies, I thought James Mason was really handsome. 
and really attractive, even when I was a child, which is weird, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know, there's nothing kind of a lo- little bit loose about him. He's uh, got that artistic, uh, maybe it just a, it feels like a touch of decadence, but also very emotional and sincere. And he's got that great accent. He's the only one with an accent. That's true. He's got a good accent. And I thought he did the best. Again, for emotional impact, I don't know. His scene, uh, his pre-death scene is extremely, I thought, it's equal to me with the Janet Gaynor um, last moments of her speech in yeah. terms of impact. Yeah. Oh, they're equal. Wow. I, I, Yeah, I definitely thought. I felt, I really felt felt that when he was like. I thought he had the best last moment too. Yeah, yeah. So those are, those are, do you want to make yeah. any choices? I'm kind of cold fish on all of them, honestly, in, in terms of attractiveness or like being like, ooh, I like that guy. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. So I agree that Judy's the best. I agree that um, Mason had the best last moment. And there were like little bits and pieces. Like I, I just can't take any of them holistically. There are like little bits and pieces I like about each of the mm. um, lead Normans or mains. But yeah, okay. I'm gonna abstain. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you've got you heard it here first. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening today. I hope you all will get out there and watch the, at least the good ones. We'll come back with some more interesting stuff the next time. It might be graphic novels. It might be poetry. It might be something else. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand